Hi, this is Sarah calling from Queens, New York, where I am up well before the sun on my way to serve as a poll worker in today's primary elections. Today's podcast was recorded at 1.23 on Thursday, September 13th. Things may have changed by the time you listen. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of this week's biggest political stories. With a dangerous hurricane headed toward the East Coast, President Trump is claiming the death toll in Puerto Rico's hurricane last year is a political attempt to undermine him. We'll talk about that. And with the midterms getting closer and closer, we'll step back and look at what's at stake for both parties on Election Day. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover politics. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. All right, so uh, Hurricane Florence is headed straight towards South Carolina right now. It's incredibly dangerous. And as that's happening, President Trump is revisiting last year and making some pretty surprising claims about Puerto Rico's death toll. We're going to get to that controversy, and we are going to do some fact-checking in a moment. But first, let's take a couple minutes and talk about Hurricane Florence. And to do that, we're going to call up our friend Sarah McCammon, who is covering the hurricane. Hey, this is Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Where are you? So I'm a, you guys have heard of the Outer Banks, right? The islands off the coast of Northeast North Carolina. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. the Outer Banks. Is it raining there yet? Not much, just sprinkling. Yesterday, I was up in Virginia Beach, which is about an hour-ish from here, and it was, you know, it's been sunny the last couple of days. You would never guess the storm was coming, but now it's like especially down here, it's gray and windy and just kind of there's like this muggy, wild feeling in the air, like something's coming and it's really quiet. How dangerous is this hurricane for South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia and Georgia right now? I mean, everybody's saying it's a really, really big one and it's shifted course a little bit. uh, And apparently, according to the meteorologists, and I'm not going to I'm certainly not a meteorologist, so I'm not going to try to explain how, but the way that it shifted is kind of weird and surprising. It's been really unpredictable and hard to forecast. This is a huge storm. It's like, at one point, at least, it was as big as an entire state or more. And and I'm not a meteorologist, but uh, the ones on TV are saying that it's not so much about the winds with this storm, potentially, but it's about the water, more like a, a Hurricane Harvey, where it, where the rain just sort of set in, that the so- storm stalled. Yeah, I mean, water is always, you know, at least half of the concern, if not more, with any hurricane, whether it's from storm surge, you know, the, basically the ocean being kind of overwhelmed along the coast and, and, and sort of rising up, or just the rain itself. But this storm is supposed to have a lot of both, and the rain is just supposed to keep coming for days, like maybe even into early next week. It's just supposed to basically hit land and then hang out. So, Sarah, last question before we let you get back to reporting. Uh, this this hurricane is coming in. It's hitting in the coming days. What have state and federal governments been focusing on in the lead up to this hurricane? What I've heard watching both state and local uh, officials sort of give advice is uh, there's a lot of emphasis on, on personal preparation. And obviously, you know, each person having their food and their medicine and their water and everything ready to go is a really good idea and really important. Um, at the same time, we do rely on, you know, state, local and federal resources to to pull everything together and to make all, a lot of these decisions about when to evacuate and where to send resources. And so people are looking to the certainly to the federal government to coordinate and to the local governments. Um, 
and I know this is the politics podcast, so as you know, there's you know there are a lot of politics around that, and every time there's a big storm like this, uh, there are conversations about whether or not that's done properly, and and clearly we're seeing that with the discussions about Puerto Rico, um, and so I think there'll be a lot of eyes on these um, uh, emergency officials, and particularly on FEMA, uh, as this one unfolds. All right, thanks, Sarah, and uh, stay safe this weekend. Please, thanks, thanks Bye-bye. so much. Good to talk to you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was NPR's Sarah McCammon. And as all this is happening, Mara, I don't think you've had to do this for a while. So can you <laughs> can you read the, the couple tweets from the president this morning that, that got everyone's attention? Yes, this was a new barrier broken in the annals of Trump tweets. First, he tweeted, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really big numbers like 3,000. This was done by Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason like old age, just add them to the list. Bad politics, I love Puerto Rico. Okay, Tam. Okay. A lot to fact check there. Where did the 3,000 death count come from? Was it just done to make Donald Trump look bad? No, of course not. But it is a relatively new number. It is the result of the governor of Puerto Rico saying, hey, the tally was low and it was simply based on like the people who were killed by wind or water. And it didn't get into the sort of longer term after effects. So the governor. One uh, of the biggest ones was was the fact that large swaths of the island went an incredibly long time without power. I mean, they didn't restore power fully until 11 months after the hurricane. That is an incredibly long time. And and a lack of power is can be a a life threatening thing for certain people, uh, particularly the elderly. So what happened is the government of Puerto Rico uh, commissioned an independent study. And what that study found is that the number of deaths reported in Puerto Rico in the six months after the hurricane were elevated by about 20 percent over the levels in a normal year. So that's where that 3000 number comes from. It's an estimate, but it's an estimate that the governor of Puerto Rico has decided to make the official death count from the storm. And we should point out this wasn't just sort of an ad hoc study. This was done by George Washington University and it was commissioned by the government of Puerto Rico. But I mean, there were there's a lot of time and resources put into completing this this study. And no one is disputing the number except the president of the United States. Right. It's worth pointing out on all of this. uh, An NPR reporter, Adrian Florido, actually moved to Puerto Rico to cover the long term recovery recovery from Maria, and he's been doing a lot of reporting on this study specifically. Uh, so his reporting's all on NPR.org. Okay, so this, uh, to me, got into uh, into a broader theme that we've, we've seen since day one of the Trump presidency, but I think it's really picked up over the last couple months, and that is President Trump saying to his base, uh, in the long and the short of it, if there's a fact that damages me, if there's a source of news that damages me, don't trust it. Right. Uh, and I did a story last week uh, that that looked at this precise thing, which is how many times has the president declared something fake or phony? The range of things that he's declaring fake and the frequency of his declarations has really ramped up in the month of August. And fake in if you actually read it doesn't mean not true. It just means that he doesn't like it. They don't cover stories the way they're supposed to be. They don't even report them in many cases if they're positive. So there's tremendous 
Um, there's tremendous, you know, we, I came up with the term fake news. It's a lot of fake news. And this also comes at a time when we are getting closer and closer to the midterm elections. Florida is going to be one of the hardest fought states. They have a lot of marquee races. And here he is pushing an evidence-free conspiracy theory that involves the deaths of thousands of Puerto Ricans. A certain number of them have moved to Florida and can vote. And the interesting thing to me is although usually Republicans just kind of shrug their shoulders and run for the elevator in the Capitol when they're asked about a Trump tweet, Florida Republicans have pushed back pretty hard against this, saying they believe the 2975 number. One Republican who was appointed by the governor to a university governing board, named the guy's named Alan Levine, uh, said, Mr. President, shut up. This is a real problem. This is an example of a problem that Trump is causing Republicans as we get closer to the elections. They want to talk about the positive message, the success stories, the fact that they're ready for Florence. The economy is good. Instead, he, because he's super undisciplined, keeps on changing the subject to something divisive, outrageous, controversial. He might think that's the way he dominates the media, and that's one of his metrics for success. But it also completely overwhelms the message that yeah. Republicans want to send out. And the other person who's been outspoken on this that I find very intriguing is Governor Rick Scott, who is now running for a Senate seat in Florida. So I've been making actually some phone calls uh, earlier this week about sort of the Scott campaign and how he's really built up a good amount of support in the Puerto Rican community there in Florida. And people have pointed out, you know, Rick Scott is somebody who visited Puerto Rico a number of times and how people, even if they were very disheartened with how the federal government responded, in many ways thought the state of Florida did a pretty good job. And so he has a tweet out saying, I disagree with that POTUS. An independent study said thousands were lost. I've been to Puerto Rico seven times and saw devastation firsthand. The loss of any life is tragic. The extent of lives lost as a result of Maria is heart-wrenching. I'll continue to help PR. Here's an example of a Republican who has identified himself very closely with Donald Trump. Oh, exactly. It will During be the used against him campaign. by the Democrats in this election. But where it counted, Puerto Rican hurricane gun control laws, he has been able to separate himself. So why are we talking about this now? We are talking about this now because someone asked President Trump, are there any lessons to be learned as this major hurricane is approaching America? Are there any lessons to be learned from this past hurricane? This was earlier this week. This was earlier this week. And, you know, in a sort of normal scenario, normal president scenario, the president of the United States would probably say something to the effect of, well, FEMA did an after-action report. They did find some deficiencies, and they have acknowledged those deficiencies. We're working through them, and we're going to make sure that none of these problems happen again. That is not what President Trump said. What President Trump said was... In Puerto Rico, I think, was tremendous. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible, unsung success. And when he did that, it sort of started the Donald Trump cycle which is the cycle of him saying something that is factually not true and then people fact-checking him and saying, uh, President Trump, 3,000 people died. And then he fights back and he hits back at the facts in some cases, including this case where he's hitting back at, but, at the sheer number. But does it matter? I guess, but I, I mean, I guess it matters in the objective sense of we all really want to believe in facts. I would like to thank my wonder the truth. But does it actually matter sort of substantively in a political way? Because I don't see ways in which this has ever tainted him today. And this is not the first time he has struggled with truth. Well, but so to get away from politics and to get to another does this matter thing, 
here's a case, uh, one of numerous, where the president of the United States is out of sync with his own government, uh, where the president is saying one thing and FEMA is mm-hmm. doing another thing. They're going to try. They are working to avoid the mistakes of the past. And just as a reminder, uh, we're having this conversation as another massive hurricane makes its way toward the East Coast. NPR is going to be covering that throughout the weekend, throughout the storm, and afterwards. You can follow all of our coverage from Sarah McCammon and other reporters who are who are stationed throughout the, the Southeast on NPR.org, on NPR One, and on your local public radio station. Tam, we're going to say goodbye to you, but thanks for coming in. I'm always glad to be here. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk uh, about big picture, what's at stake in these midterms. We'll be right back. Support for this program comes from Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is self-installed wireless protection for your home. The company was founded by an electrical engineer whose friends were burglarized. They wanted home security, but most systems were too complicated and too expensive. So he built Simply Safe. Now they protect over 2 million people. And with Simply Safe, there are no annual contracts. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/nprpolitics. Planet Money tip number 17. Sometimes the most important things need a hype squad. Corporate. Corporate. Income. Income. Tax. Corporate income tax! Planet Money, a podcast about the economy. A very enthusiastic podcast about the economy. We're back, and Domenico Montanaro is now here. Hello. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So we have... Many, 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 many times on this podcast talked about the midterms because that's what we do. And we're going to keep doing that. But there's a lot at stake here. And I think it's it's worth taking a few minutes in today's show and taking a big picture view at how much is riding on the results of this midterm for the Democratic Party, for the Republican Party. And Mara, let me just start with this question for you. If after Election Day, the, the dust clears, whatever cliche you want to put in, and Republicans still retain control of the House. What is your first thought in terms of what this means? Well, first of all, that would be just a huge, unimaginably horrible blow to Democrats. Democrats are in such a deep hole after eight years of President Obama, where they ended up minus net a thousand seats or more nationally. So they were in a very deep hole. If they can't get the House back, they've been totally repudiated. It means that for them, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, probably dead. It means they can't protect DACA, the dreamers. It means they won't be able to do oversight of Donald Trump. It just It's just a huge crushing blow. It's and just, there will be a big circular firing squad in the Democratic Party if that happens. And in four words, Trump would be emboldened. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you think about he has had his back against the wall this entire time. And when his back is, is against the wall, he lashes out, right? I mean, nobody is spared if you're coming after Donald Trump. And if the Republicans were to retain control of both chambers, you can bet he's just going to put his foot on the gas. For and you sure. could argue it's not just about Donald Trump, but the Republican Party writ large would feel emboldened to push through policies. I mean, we saw already that one of the policies that was able to get through was the tax couple. I mean, that that's yeah. not necessarily Donald Trump's 
talking point that we heard loads about on the campaign trail. That's something the Republican Party has wanted to do for a long time. I and that's why the, Democrats feel so existential about this election. Right, because I think for me, the, the biggest message would be President Trump's governing style has been validated again by voters and the Republican Party's decision to wrap themselves entirely around the persona and the personality of Donald Trump would be validated as well. Uh, so flip side of that, Democrats have a lot of policies they're talking about. They're talking about having early bills that, that focus on health care cost reduction, on, on, on boosting the ACA. But with a Republican in the White House and possibly Republicans maintaining control of Senate, to me, the biggest outcome, the biggest thing at stake for Democrats taking control of the House is that they could start doing oversight of President Trump in the White House. I think oversight is a big, big part of what will happen. But I, I mean, think if they take oh, if they take the house, if, yes. if Democrats take back the house, oversight is a big part of what will happen. But I think everything grinds to a halt and is what you wind up seeing. And you know what? Like a lot of people will say that that's how the system was set up, that people want checks and balances. But in this new culture we're in, I'm not sure there are enough people willing to compromise, willing to work together to make the legislative body actually work. You'll see the gears grind to an absolute halt, most likely, unless President Trump decides that uh, he's going to cry uncle a little bit and wind up compromising. But Mara, what does the oversight part of it mean to you? Like, what do you think that means in terms of what Democrats focus on and, and, and ask about? Right. If we're talking about what happens if the Democrats take the House back, I agree. Legislation grinds to a halt. Oversight begins. I think that not only will there be a big investigation into all of the things that Bob Mueller is looking into, and at some point we're going to get a report from him, but there are going to be a lot of other investigations. There's going to be an investigation of whether Donald Trump's family and Donald Trump himself has been making money off the presidency. We're going to talk about his tax returns. There are going to be dozens and dozens of investigations. Um, that is what subpoena power means when you're in the majority. So for the White House, life will change immediately. Every single person in the White House is going to be potentially the subject of an investigation by a Democratic House. Yeah. And, and one thing that struck me over the last few days, I've been talking to a lot of top House Democrats about what oversight actually means. And uh, several of them, the first thing that they mentioned wasn't Mueller. Uh, it, it was actually, uh, we want to take a look at the Trump administration undermining the Affordable Care Act, undermining laws that were put in place, whether it's not advertising for uh, Obamacare markets or several other things they've done. And I thought that was interesting because they tied it back to something that they see as, as one of the top policy concerns of voters. The, the, the purpose of the House leadership is going to be to use these investigations, and as I said, there will be dozens of them, to send a message. In other words, all of these investigations are going to be laying the groundwork for the 2020 presidential elections. And if they think health care is a top issue, well, of course, they're going to want investigations talking about how Donald Trump tried to minimize or deny you health care. The other thing that I think will happen immediately is there's going to be a wrenching debate inside the Democratic Party about whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached. Should they move to impeachment soon or should they merely let all of these investigations play out step by step over the next two years before the presidential election and lay the groundwork for why Donald Trump is running a corrupt administration or why he's unfit for office. But there is tremendous pressure from the left-wing base of the Democratic Party to impeach this guy immediately. I don't know how many Democratic activists understand that impeachment is not 
removal because Donald Trump will not be removed from office. That takes 67 votes in the Senate. But that will become a huge debate inside the Democratic Party. So I guess the two quick things to what, Mara, you were talking about. One is, I think with impeachment, what's really interesting to me is We'll, we'll kind of get a glimpse, I think, into how large of a fight that will, will be within the Democratic Party, depending on how many progressives end up winning seats. And I do think, you know, you, you are seeing this very activist front on the, le- the left and you are seeing a push uh, for impeachment. But to your point, I think it's going to really erupt some sort of existential questions amongst the Democratic Party and questions that they don't necessarily want to be having two years before a presidential election where they need to unite their party. Yeah, but also it's a t- it's a tactical matter. What what makes more sense politically to investigate the guy thoroughly as the party that's the check and balance is supposed to do and let the voters decide or to rush to this conclusion? To me, for many Democrats, they will say impeachment is the left wing version of locker up. It's the result of something. It shouldn't be the first thing you start with. Well, and the fact is, you know, polling on impeachment doesn't show a very good right. potential sign for Democrats. I mean, the fact is more people would have been saying that they would vote f- for somebody who would not impeach rather than somebody who would impeach. And that's a big potential problem for the Democratic base and for the kind of more moderate candidates uh, or establishment candidates who are Democrats who would rather have sort of a long drawn out investigation process. Let's let's shift our hypothetical lens a little bit. Uh, we, we were talking about if Democrats do uh, take back control of the House. Uh, what are Republicans asking themselves the next day if that does happen? What are they thinking about? What does this mean for the Republican Party? Well, the Republican yeah. agenda is over if the Democrats take back the House. I mean, to Domenico's point, though, policy would sort of grind to a halt. But I would make the argument that a lot of Democratic voters uh, they don't mind at all. Like you go out right. and you talk to Democratic voters. Some of them are livid. They are so angry about Donald Trump's election. I was just on the phone um, doing some pre-interviews with some people involved in th- this local indivisible group in the suburbs of Detroit. I mean, these are people who are rallying to get local Democratic officials elected. You're not just talking about congressional seats. You're talking about state elected officials, gubernatorial seats. They want massive, massive change. And so I would argue a lot of Democratic voters would be thrilled if things ground to a halt because they've been so unhappy with the situation. When you talk to voters, is there a clear theme of of what they see this election as about or things that you just keep hearing over and over again? I mean, on the Democratic side, it's really hard to ignore that this race is about Donald Trump. Singularly, I would say on the Democratic side. And that's not at all to diminish, you know, the candidates who are running, who I think have really different um, both sort of like personalities as well as policies in many cases. And they're really individualistic depending on where you live geographically in the country. But time and again, you just hear Donald Trump's mention, name mentioned all the time. I mean, I look at, you know, Ayanna Presley, who just won a congressional seat in Massachusetts. In her victory speech, she's talking about Donald Trump. I mean, this is not unusual. You just hear Democrats constantly going back to him. And yet candidates on the campaign trail very rarely bring him up as their top priority. They're more likely to be talking about health care, wage discrepancy, for example. And what Democratic strategists have told me behind the scenes is that that's purposeful because they know that Donald Trump will fire up liberals anyway. I just came back from uh, an event that Ben Ray Lujan did with with reporters, he's running uh, the campaign for House Democrats, and and somebody asked him again about the fact that so many of the candidates try to avoid talking about him. His argument was, 
Our strategic viewpoint is that Donald Trump talks about himself. We don't need to spend time talking about him when we can mm-hmm. talk about other things because he's going to insert himself in the voters' brains. And when we right, talk every, about oh. issues, the other thing that I should mention that has come up time and time again is health care. Um, I cannot tell you the frequency with which that has come up. I don't know that voters have a clear idea of what they want as a solution, but I have met many people who do not have health care and many people for whom they are paying, they feel outrageous fees. For well, they want to pay less and they don't want to have pre-existing conditions be a ban on health coverage, that's for sure. Well, I think that gets to one of the biggest unknowns here. Uh, if Republicans do maintain control of Congress, well, we can likely see uh, another push to repeal Obamacare, which they famously did not get done in this session of Congress. But what happens next if it's split government? Because then we get back to that initial question of the Trump presidency. Could he cut a deal with Democrats? Time and time again, we have seen him give no inclination that he has any interest in doing anything but be a base Republican. Except for when he went to the arms of Chuck and Nancy. Briefly. Briefly. 48 hours. But the stakes for Donald Trump are also very high, and they could cut both ways. When you talk to people in the White House, what happens if the House goes Democratic? What does it mean for Trump? Some of them will say, well, look what happened to Barack Obama. He lost Congress and he cruised to re-election. Donald Trump will get another foil, which he lives for. He likes to have a foil and a punching bag, and the House Democrats will automatically be his number one enemy. And they think it could work for him. But what it really means is that um, he loses control and he's faced with the kind of question, the big strategic question that Scott just asked is, should he triangulate the way presidents in the distant past used to do when faced with an opposition like Congress? Way like way back in 2006. Way back in, well, or way back in, yeah, <laughs> Obama tried. It didn't work really work out or the way Bush, Clinton yeah. did. Or does he just double down on the strategy that he's used up until now, which is it's all about the base? That's what he's been focused on. He's never tried to persuade. He's just t- tried to energize the people he already has. And also, though, Scott, I mean, I have a question for you, though. When you look at Congress, even having both chambers be Republican at this point, it seems like there's been limited pieces of really big, substantial Republican legislation that he's gotten through. He got through the tax cuts and certainly the Supreme Court, you know, and a number of judges, I should say. But there have been other pieces, and I think notably of the Affordable Care Act, that he wanted, Republicans, I should say, some of them, wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and that didn't get through. Yeah, I think the tax cuts are by and large the biggest uh, legislative accomplishment. Uh, Two Supreme Court justices likely is certainly a major thing that could impact the country for decades. But after that, it's really just a lot of executive action repealing regulations. And he could continue to do that. Judges is still huge. I mean, let's not minimize that. If 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 Republicans keep control of the Senate as they are projected to do, but we don't know, um, they still will be able to confirm judges. And that is the single most important way that Donald Trump is having an impact on American life, a a, a generations long impact. All right. Just some of what's at stake in the midterms. We're going to take a quick break and come back with Can't Let It Go. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Introducing their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com/nprpolitics. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Support also comes from SaneBox, an artificial intelligence assistant for your email. It prioritizes what's important, removes junk, 
organizes newsletters, and automates tedious tasks. SaneBox works anywhere you check your email today, on any email client or device. Visit SaneBox.com politics for a free inbox cleanup, a two-week trial of its AI features, and a $25 credit if you decide to stay. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and on the latest TED Radio Hour, how to talk about death candidly. Being able to accept that someday I will decompose, there is something comforting to me about that. You can find the TED Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. It is time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, where we talk about the one thing we can't let go of, politics or otherwise. And Domenico, I think you should go first because I think this might be something that you and I have already spent a lot of time discussing in the newsroom this week. I'm excited. (laughs) You know, okay, there hasn't (laughs) been this kind of New York-centric internet outrage since Donald Trump and Sarah Palin ate pizza with a fork. But let's get right to it here. Cynthia Nixon, who's running for governor of New York, in the run-up to Thursday's primary, she ordered something at a deli. Let's listen to that. So I'm going to give you cannabis as well. Yeah, with the cinnamon raisin. Yes, yes, please. Yeah, sweet and salty. You're right. So you can hear her say cinnamon raisin. And then I heard capers. Capers and locks and cream cheese. And <laughs> there must have been, that doesn't sound good. There must have been a pause with the bagel guy because she <laughs> said, yes, sweet and salty. The internet went bonkers over this because, I mean, it is not... You know, that is not a typical order, would I say, uh, in New York to order cinnamon raisin with locks and capers. It's a sacrilege, actually. <laughs> Here's the thing. I feel like anytime you're a politician and you're doing the food thing, you like the sick. world is poised and ready to like tear down whatever you did, like John Kerry screwing up the cheesesteak order in Philadelphia, trying to get Swiss cheese on it once. Again, Swiss cheese <laughs> on a cheesesteak. Just get the provolone. <laughs> like That's what they give you. But that's yes. where you should play the safe option. You got to play it safe. You got to know right. that we're What's all ready to pounce. Mara, you... Mara are looking thoughts. at me. Just wrong, wrong, wrong. However, <laughs> wait, what? However, what the, 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 I'm just saying, <laughs> cinnamon raisin plus capers and locks, gross. However, <laughs> however, the, the political ramifications of screwing up an ethnic food order used to be very, yeah. very big. I don't know if they still are. Didn't yeah. But Ford? I've seen people mess up the fish fry many, yeah. many times. You're supposed to take a piece of fried fish from Jim Clyburn's fish fries and stick it in a piece of Wonder Bread and hold it and then eat it without a plate, uh-huh. which I've seen Barack Obama do correctly. But I do wouldn't you? do it. I think it's gross. <laughs> but at the same time, I buy her don't yuck on my yum, right? If she likes it, I mean, I don't know. Like, fine, that's her thing. All right. We can't talk about this for the rest of the show as much as I would like to. Mara, what can you not let go? By Can't Let Go This Week is the Department of Swagger, which is what the (laughs) State Department, in a lighthearted, half-joking moment, renamed itself, complete with a seal that says Department of Swagger instead of Department of State on the seal, presumably... Secretary of State Pompeo, who has talked in the past about wanting to the State Department to, quote, get its swagger back, feels that its swagger was squelched, perhaps by Donald Trump's repeated disparagement of the deep state and, and diplomats. But the reaction to the Department of Swagger was a huge Twitter groan, kind of like <laughs> as if somebody's a politician put on dad jeans. Basically, it was 
it, it was put into the department of trying too hard. <laughs> However, one of the things that I like best about this episode was that Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, which has been a real player this year in politics, trolling Donald Trump often. I think they're they the ones out, who've been trying too yes, hard. They, they, no. they, yeah. there is a, I just want to end, <laughs> I just want to close by reading the definition of swagger from the dictionary. Quote, to conduct oneself in an arrogant or superciliously pompous manner, especially to walk with an air of overbearing uh, self-confidence. I kind of disagree with that definition because I think that swagger. It's from the dictionary. dictionary. I do disagree with the dictionary. The dictionary <laughs> is created by people. I mean, like, swagger in pop culture has taken on a, ver- a positive connotation. You might hear someone say, I like your swagger. Like, it doesn't mean, like, no. oh, you're superciliously pompous. But I don't think of the State Department in pop culture. No. All right, Asma. All right, well, mine, can't let it go, is not nearly as funny. Um, but I've been, like, strangely obsessed with it. So let's put it in that okay. category. So the New York Times has started something called live polling. Um, actually, Domenico, we were on a chain. Actually, were you on this, Scott, too? Where we were I was, and I was going to respond until I realized that everyone disagreed with me. <laughs> Uh-oh. I can't wait I'm to can't hear wait the hot take. I can't wait to hear your take. Okay, so basically what they're doing is I, I would argue they're trying to kind of lift the veil of how polling works. I think there have been a lot of questions, particularly this political cycle, about why do we poll, how accurate are polls, what exactly are polls. And so what they're doing is they have these live polls that show you how many calls they are making. And they're, they're actually updated in real time. So, for example, uh, I'm on their site right now, and they can show you that in Are they the still Wisconsin doing first district, okay. they have, which is uh, Paul Ryan's congressional district, they have made 21,552 calls to get 422 people to actually They could have just written that and but said that that's what happened. Here's what I like. I liked this for a couple reasons, and I know that... Yeah. A lot of you guys didn't like it. But, I kind of uh, liked it. When you're oh, on the site, stresses. when you're on the site at night, when they're doing the live calling, they have a graphic in real time, and you could see them. It shakes when they're calling the person, and then when they don't answer, it goes, "Oh, did not pick up," and it moves down, and it's like an assembly line of calls, mm-hmm. and it's kind of mesmerizing to watch them call hundreds of people and have nobody pick up. The but phone. mostly, it's transparent. How can yeah. that be bad? Well, I think okay, that's, I'm I, with you. All right, I will go last. I guess I have a late break and can't let it go, and that I just realized that my pen has been leaking all over my hand throughout this entire oh. taping, so my hand is covered with green ink. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to bring this back to Monday, and I saw on Twitter that Ben Folds had a new song that came out. So I clicked on it. I was listening to it. Hey, who's Ben Folds? Oh, man. I I have to ask that question because there might be listeners. He's not even new. He's been around for a long time. Yeah, but there might be listeners who don't know who Ben Folds is. Okay. I'm representing them in this podcast. (laughs) I would say he's like an indie rock guy. He's been around for a couple decades. I had a phase uh, earlier in my life where I like listening to music. I still like his music. And I was like, okay. This sounds like a very classic, traditional Ben Folds type song. And as I'm listening to it, I realized that... (laughs) The song is about Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. House Intelligence Committee piles on. They love to know what Rosenstein has on the boss. But it's just for cameras, yeah, it's just a show for us. We all know he can't comply, but that's the point, of course. So they call. 
I love Ben Folds, but everything sounds the same. It sounds the same. It sounds like he was just like, so wait, let explain what this is about. The Washington Post did a special issue of its magazine and asked him to just like write a song and they'd record him throughout the process. To me, the biggest takeaway is that it reminds people that Donald Trump reportedly referred to Rod Rosenstein as Mr. Peepers. So two pamphlet goes. One, it's just like bizarre and weird that he's making songs about Rod Rosenstein. Two, it seems like he was just kind of like, all right, may, let me just get the generic blueprint for like all of my songs and plug in current politics. They say it dies in the dark. All right, that is it for this week. We'll be back in your feed anytime there's news. And we will, starting this weekend, be in your radios, too. The podcast is now a radio show. We have a secret alter ego on the radio, though. We are not the NPR Politics <laughs> Podcast. We are the politics show from NPR. So I don't know if that's our superhero name and the podcast is our secret identity or the other way around. Huh. Either way, go to your local public radio station and look for the politics show from NPR. We'll be on this weekend. We'll, and we'll be back in your podcast feed next time there's news. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. And I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Lord help us all.